you're listening to the Direct Care Derm. My name is Stephen. I'm a board-certified dermatologist and direct care dermatology practice owner. I'm also your host. The Direct Care Derm is a podcast that gives you a blueprint for creating a direct care practice of your own with the help of my story as I'm living it and the stories of many friends and colleagues, both within dermatology and other fields of medicine and in relevant non-medical fields, such as marketing and finance. Each week, my friends and I will be bringing you tips, resources, education, entertaining stories, industry insights, and so much more. Consider this your one-stop shop for taking yourself from direct care curiosity to direct care mastery. At this point, you may find yourself asking, what is direct care? Direct care is the restoration of the therapeutic physician-patient relationship and the trust between patient and physician that has eroded so terribly over the last several decades. Direct care is addition by subtraction. It's the opposite of indirect care, the kind of care that's so frustrating to both patients and doctors. If you or a doctor in your life has ever talked about being burned out in medicine, this is one of the biggest reasons why. Fortunately, there's something we can do about it. By removing as many barriers as possible that stand between physicians like myself and the people who need us, Direct care practices seek to provide transparent, affordable, accessible, and superior care that meets and ideally even surpasses the expectations of the 21st century healthcare consumer. I just want to thank everyone for their support on an amazing launch of the Direct Care Derm podcast. I'll be honest, I have no metrics, no statistical benchmarks, nothing like that to compare anything that I'm seeing too. And I like it that way. The show already has over 250 views. For me, that feels amazing. In the world of podcasting in general, it might not be. I don't care at this point. It's 250 more than I might have had otherwise, and I'm grateful for that. We already have five five five-star ratings and three awesome reviews on Apple Podcasts. It's a labor of love to put something like this together, but it's also a privilege and a gift. So thank you to everyone who has listened, downloaded, followed, subscribed, shared, given us a review. All those things are so helpful and really mean the world to me. And if you're listening to this before the end of the day on January 11th, 2024, the day that this episode was released, you're still eligible to earn a chance in the Treat Yourself skincare giveaway sponsored by my wonderful partners at Regimen Pro. See the links in the show notes for more information about Regimen Pro and how they can help. And thank you to them for making this giveaway possible. We're using the honor system in the giveaway. You got one chance for a listen or download. You already earned that if you're hearing this. You get two chances for following or subscribing to the show on your favorite podcasting platform. You get three chances for sharing it anywhere within your network. And you get four chances for leaving a rating and review on Apple Podcasts, or again, your favorite podcasting platform. Ratings and reviews are the biggest way that podcasts can grow and reach new audiences and help additional people. Regimen Pro has generously donated over $600 worth of awesome skincare products to make this giveaway a reality. I'm grateful for their support and look forward to continued collaboration. Just a brief note about today's episode with Dr. Adam Swigost. Dr. Swigost's audio was lost for the last couple minutes of the interview. 
in the end, this is no big deal. This was the time when we were closing and I was giving him an opportunity to share with you how you can reach him and express my gratitude for him being there. I'll fill in some of those blanks now. I do apologize that the interview ends relatively abruptly, but this is the context for that. When you're building anything, things are gonna break. Bad things are gonna happen. You'll feel bad for a second and then you just have to move on, fix it and figure out how to make it never happen again. So that's my vow to you and my apologies to Dr. Swigost. You can connect with Dr. Swigost at the website for his practice, dapperdermatology.com. You can also connect with him on Instagram at dapperdermmd. You can reach him at info at dapperdermatology.com. So please, if you're interested in learning more about him, connecting with him for any reason, or potentially being a patient of his, reach out to him. Today's show really does hit the mark of what I want the show to be. Part inspiration, part roadmap. We kick things off with Adam sharing with me his realization that there has to be a better way to do this. This hit home with me because it's something that I and so many other physicians are feeling these days. We talk about Adam going back home and giving back to his community in North Dakota. We talk about practicing dermatology on your own terms. And then we go under the hood and learn about things he's using, how he solved problems in his practice for messaging, for example, seamlessly with patients using a great system that he's now integrated and is very happy with. We also talk about the marketing learning curve and the reality of digital advertising, especially when your practice doesn't have a physical location. We talk about the importance of financial preparedness. We discuss the Gay and Lesbian Dermatology Association and how amazing affinity groups like this are so important. We touch on the drug metformin in dermatology and the many ways that inflammation and insulin resistance manifest themselves for our patients. Stick around for a wonderful conversation with Dr. Adam Swigost. Welcome, everybody, to another episode of the Direct Care Derm. I'm your host, Dr. Stephen Luellis, and today I have the great pleasure of having with me my guest, Dr. Adam Swigost. I know Adam only through the internet at this point. He announced that he was opening up his practice and it was a really big deal and lots of us got excited about it. I got excited about it. I looked into it and it seemed to be something really similar to what I was also building, but just in a different state. And he was a little bit ahead of me and I really wanted to get a hold of him and pick his brain. And, and I know he can add so much to our community. And I just want to thank you, Adam, for being willing to be on the show. Yeah, thank you so much for having me, obviously, as well. Mm -hmm. It's really exciting to get to share a little bit about what I've done, even yeah. though I feel like there's still so much to get done and to mm -hmm. do with this practice. My name is Adam Swigost. I'm originally from Bismarck, North Dakota, which is a town of about 70,000 people. Mm -hmm. And I was in North Dakota for 26 years. I did everything from high school through undergrad at the University of North Dakota, where I got a BA in political science, a BS in biology. And then I also attended medical school at the University of North Dakota as well. After that, North Dakota has no academic dermatology program mm. at all. There's probably about 10 to 15 dermatologists in the entire state of North Dakota at any given time. And so it's really difficult to access certain aspects of healthcare, but most certainly dermatology is one of the challenging ones. So I had to leave North Dakota. I went to Florida to a small city called Ocala outside of Orlando for my internship, and then ultimately ended up at Georgetown in Washington, D.C., where I did my uh, medical residency in dermatology. I had an amazing experience, an amazing training, first of all, is the first thing I would say about 
uh, everything that led up to me getting to Georgetown. The thing, though, that I noticed was not so much the academic part of dermatology and the learning part of dermatology that was frustrating, but it was the administrative aspect mm -hmm. of healthcare. And especially when you're a resident, there's a lot of barriers to not only providing care to patients, but also taking care of yourself as a human being. And I found that juxtaposition really challenging as I went through the course of my training, because I was like, there has to be a better way to do this. After residency, I looked for my first job and I knew that I wanted to own my practice. And so I felt like the most logical thing to do was to join a private practice where that was a potential. And I found a practice that I loved. I worked there for a year, but unfortunately about nine to 10 months into my employment there, the practice sold to a large private equity firm, mm -hmm. which I'm sure we'll talk a little bit about. But for those who don't know, private equity is essentially a group of very wealthy individuals who want to grow their wealth further. They end up buying assets that can enhance their portfolios and dermatology for a long time has been attractive for that. So our practice sold and I could no longer own the practice. So my option was to stay as an employee or to pursue a, a different pathway. And so after that, I decided to leave. I've been working more a locums style job in recent months. And that gave me the time also and the energy to finally create my own practice. And that's really how Dapper Dermatology was born, which is my practice. Mm -hmm. I launched Dapper Dermatology as a virtual practice in my home state of North Dakota for multiple reasons. Number one is that it felt like a very high need market, a place that being a dermatologist has a lot of value. But two, I felt like it was a really good way for me to give back to my home community. And for me, I tend to be someone who's pretty passionate about and has a lot of meaning behind all the choices they make. And so to me, it felt like the most logical place to begin for my direct pay practice. First of all, congratulations on opening your practice. That's such a big deal. You mentioned up front that you feel like there's so much more to do and there always will be as a business owner, the to-do list only gets longer and the hours in the day are always limited. So we all have to learn to balance that. But it's a big deal that you press the launch button and you're going to iterate from there and it, it's it, there's going to be changes and mistakes and things you learn, but you are giving back to, to your home state. You're providing people a way to see a high quality board certified dermatologist, which is a, a very limited resource in our country, especially in a state like yours, without having to travel two to three hours, which I, I imagine if you were working at a brick and mortar practice in North Dakota, Bismarck, you often get patients who say, I drove two and a half hours. So I love the innovation. I love that you're going for it on your own. You said you knew from the beginning that you wanted to own your practice. I really admire that. Like a lot of us, I got out of residency and I just got a job. I knew I didn't want to be in academics. I didn't have any role models showing me that private practice is a possibility. I had all the voices in my head saying it's not a possibility, which I think is a great conversation. And you, people like you and me are going to change that for the next generation of younger physicians, which is great. But I would love to know more about how you had that mindset right from the beginning. For me, maybe it was because I, I did a medical scientist training program. So I was also doing a PhD during medical school. It was just a long road for me. And I had a family and a child on the way. I just wanted to learn dermatology, get a job. So that's what I did. 
now I know that I, I want more than a job. Uh, but for you, I think it's cool that you knew you wanted to own right away. So talk a little bit about that. Did you have role models? How do you think that came about? The interesting thing about North Dakota is that there are, off the top of my head, I can think of two practices that are physician-owned. Yeah. All the other dermatologists in the state are actually employed by large health systems. Makes yep. They really function entirely as outpatient dermatologists, though. They mm -hmm. never go to the hospital. They never did inpatient consults because they're so busy, like you said. I remember when I was doing my clinic rotations in my home city, patients drive six hours to see the dermatologist. So the need was there. They had to be in clinic all the time just to deal with the outpatient issues. Initially, my only exposure to what a dermatologist was that you worked for a large health system. It wasn't until I did my internship in Florida. That was the first time I worked in a true private practice. I worked with an amazing dermatologist, Ashley Koff in Ocala, and her practice was awesome. Her staff was super cool. And I love that she practiced dermatology on her terms. Yeah. And the flexibility as well. You could bring in a new procedure. You could try a new thing. I also love that the access, it seemed like to, to newer therapeutics was easier. Like in private practice, you can walk into your sample closet and yeah. you can give someone Opsalura, right? Mm -hmm. Like the same day. Whereas if you're in a hospital system, two to three weeks, and they still might get denied and never get that medication. So even yeah. if you can just get them a sample, it, it gets them along the way further. I think for me, the big changing point was when I worked in a really large health system as a resident, and I worked in multiples. Georgetown University is affiliated with MedStar Health, and then I worked with Children's National Health Center, the National Institutes of Health. They were great health systems, but there was a lot of bureaucracy. And what I found myself struggling with is I was like, this is very inefficient for patients, and it ends up creating longer wait times, creating more expense. People aren't getting seen as needed. And so how do those patients get seen? Then they go to the emergency department or urgent care. Yeah. Sometimes they don't get the correct treatment, or it ends up just creating a lot of waste for our medical system. And so for me as a resident, I was always very systems focused and thinking about how can we do things better, faster, more efficiently both for us as physicians, as well as, as for, for doctors or, in, and for patients for that matter as well. So that really, for me, I think was seeing how wasteful the medical system can be. And there's multiple layers to that from mm -hmm. bureaucracy and hospital systems to insurance waste, to some of just the bureaucratic paperwork that we do every day that we accept as normal. But the reality is none of this stuff is normal. There's a reason all of these things exist. And it's not to make healthcare better. It's really to make somebody else money. At That's the end right. Of the day. When I saw that system, as you described it, and I didn't expose myself to something else where I saw the light, like your experience in Florida, where you're like, oh my gosh, these people are actually smiling. They seem like they're happy. They want to be here. And that is a, a really nice thing to see. And the agility you can have when you're a practice owner, you go get your Absolora from my closet, or you don't have to, I, I would take samples in my big hospital job. And I was the rebel in that regard. I was the only one with a stash of samples in my office because I knew it was right for my patients. You just ask for forgiveness rather than permission in some cases when you know it's the right thing. Talking to the point of inefficiency and wait times, it's so frustrating because the, what you described, long wait times and high costs, right? It's not high direct costs to the patients necessarily, although it often is before they've met their deductible. They just don't get the bill until a few weeks later, and then they're angry yeah. because it's $437.42, and they're like, where did this come from? I already paid a copay. I'm paying a premium all of that stuff. And that is so frustrating to me as a as an insurance member as well. And the service probably wasn't 
fantastic. So you have a long wait time, you have a high cost, mostly indirectly, but also directly. So usually when you have those two components in a product, the product or experience is going to be something really good, <laughs> like a luxury oh, product, a great experience, because you're waiting a long time for it, and you're paying a lot of money for it. But in, in the system, you wait a long time, somebody pays a lot of money indirectly or directly, and you get an, a mediocre to not great product, not because you're seeing me or you, the the the, the few minutes, or if you're lucky, 10 to 15 or 20 or 25, if it's a complicated case, and that puts us behind schedule, that can be really high quality, but everything else about it, the the waiting room, the, the, the experience of filling out the forms, all of that stuff feels to the patient like nobody really cares about me. I'm just another part of the volume that they need to meet their quarterly goals. That's a big part of what frustrated me. It doesn't have to be this way is what I always said. And you said there has to be a better way. And that is so true. That's what's exciting about this groundswell of physicians who are trending back towards independent practice. It's it's not all direct care. Direct care is not the only way to go. It's our way that we're doing right now, but it is certainly not the only thing that is possible, but just more autonomy within an independent practice. But you and I both find that direct care is a wonderful way to go because you can run a really lean business and give a wonderful product and not have really long wait times and charge patients a price that is transparent it is not cheap. We don't want to be cheap. There's no reason to deliver a cheap product. It is value. If you're providing a valuable service, you get value in return, and the market decides that, the patient decides that. But it's also not just people who are wealthy. This is not concierge medicine. We can talk about that difference between concierge versus direct care. It's this person has a rash now. They could wait three months. The rash is probably going to go away. They're going to be miserable for a few weeks. goes away on its own. Then they show up to the appointment with you just because they say, I had the appointment, so I figured I'd just come anyway. And meanwhile, they were miserable for all that time. In a practice like this, I could go on your website. Maybe I have poison ivy. I don't know what I have. Dr. Swiggers has an appointment, $200. Okay, I'm miserable. That's reasonable. I spend $200 at Sephora. A lot of people who are not well-to-do do that. And you're in. I imagine your wait time is not super long and not because you're not in demand because that's by design. How do you plan to constrain your wait time? Because for me, that's going to be a big part of it. I don't want to get to the point where I have a three-month wait time. That's not acceptable to me. But how are you going to approach that once you do get a higher amount of patient flow? Word's going to get around. Everyone in North Dakota is going to want to see you. There's going to be a lot of word of mouth advertising and goodwill that's coming your way as you deliver these good experiences. And tell me a little bit about how you approach that and make sure that you're still being able to cut down on those wait times and deliver a really high quality product and keep your numbers in control. So I think part of it is going to be building in that availability for urgent things, right? Mm -hmm. Like that patient that has that new rash that's yeah. really itchy and uncomfortable and they need to be seen within a few days, not within a few weeks. So one thing that's nice is because it's my practice, I have the ability to control the schedule at all times, right? It's not like when you work for a big health system and they're just like, here's your template, we fill in the template. It doesn't really matter to us if you want to have certain things built in. Sometimes you have a great administrator who will listen to you, but that's also a, its own political challenge to go mm -hmm. through when you're employed. I think another nice thing is that, again, if you call a large hospital system, you enter into the dreaded phone tree. And I think we've all been in the phone tree before with our practice. 
I have been able to create a system where we utilize digital texting services mm -hmm. that are HIPAA compliant. And so once a patient has been seen by me, they get access to that number to send us their initial photos for their initial consult. But if there's an issue, like I had a patient last week, there was an issue with her prescription getting sent to via mail to her. And she was able to text me directly. We got it resolved within two hours compared to what would probably be you on the phone for 30 minutes, back and forth emails, back and forth texting for forever. I think the other thing too, is that when you work for a private practice, like to me, Dapper Dermatology, it is so much a reflection of who I am. I'm so heavily invested in it that I want everything to go incredibly well. And at some point it will be great to have a large team that can help me to continue to deliver on this mission. But for the moment, I go out of my way to make sure that patients are getting the absolute best care. I think that's why most of us went into medicine in the first place mm -hmm. is that we were super motivated to take care of people and we want every single patient to have a perfect experience. Mm -hmm. And it's harder to do that if you're seeing 60 people a day, yeah. which some dermatologists are. Can I see 40 to 45 people in a day? Yes, I can. But can I be involved in the care and every single aspect of it, like making sure medications get where they're supposed to go, following up on communications? That's impossible yeah. because doing that many patients, that's eight hours of clinical work plus another two hours of documenting at home. Mm -hmm. I would like to be able to go to the gym and eat healthy and do all the things I tell my patients to do. So I need some self-care time. But by keeping the practice smaller, you're seeing fewer patients, number one. Number two is that you prioritize your schedule in a different way. And number three is that you leave yourself time to be more available to your patients at the end of the day. It's a refocus of going to what we've always talked about in medicine, which is quality of care over volume of care. Mm -hmm. um, and in the current system, I think the reason we see so many doctors across all specialties burnt out is that it's all about volume. In a system where Medicare reimbursements go down every year, insurance reimbursement goes down every year, patients don't see that. Their premiums yeah. will always go up. <laughs> insurance is broken, right? We, we all yeah. know that. There's it's still big... the doctor's fault that, that, that oftentimes we're, we're the ones who are blamed for it, at least. To 100%. I, I will say that the one thing that I've noticed change in the last six months in my position I'm in doing this locum work is that patients for the first time are not blaming me for the cost or the weight associated with their care. It's really fascinating. I do take extra time in my visits now when I start someone on a biologic yeah. or send a prescription to a specialty pharmacy. I take a little extra time to tell them about what's going to happen. And I also encourage them not just to call their insurance company. I'm like, you should call the insurance commissioner if they decline this. Oh, wow. um, I had a patient on Wednesday that I'm trying to get on Otesla has a history of autism spectrum disorder. Parents are super involved with their healthcare, obviously, and, and for good reason. And as someone who has a brother with intellectual disability, I'm very passionate about making sure that patients get taken care of the right mm -hmm. way. But he was needle phobic, so none of the injectables were a good option, right? And so Otesla was the best. And I got a prior authorization form back from the specialty pharmacy that was eight pages long with 25 questions. And these are not just yes, no questions. Yep. These are like the dreaded, remember the SAT test, right? It's yep. like, you have to read through and they're like, if Bobby is sitting next to Jimmy, but Jimmy doesn't like Kelly and Kelly's there, then what should Karen do? Yeah. Those are the types of questions that the level of detail they want for every patient we put on a medicine now. Yeah. I think I'm fairly intelligent. I made it through medical school. It took me almost 20 minutes to navigate the form and hopefully fill it out correctly. But at the end of every prior authorization now, and in my assessment and plans, I always document what I think is right for the patient. 
I have a medical legal reason for why I am putting them on the medicine. And I always will put, if insurance denies this, they're accepting the liability for what they're creating. Good for you. The system is so unaccountable. Yeah. And I think as a doctor, if you would, if we have to take that extra time, but I think patients appreciate it and they are starting to understand more and more that health insurance and, and the big lobbies, they don't listen to us. So we, we have to find a different way to navigate the current system. That's awesome. You are taking it in your own hands, but you're also doing it in an innovative way that is taking the authority that the doctor has had in our culture and still does to some degree. Patients perceive a lot of authority, or people in general. Our community perceives authority, I think, still in doctors. Maybe not to the degree it used to be, but they still do. And when you, as a doctor step up and refuse to be all over by these third parties and say confidently, this is my recommendation for these reasons and anticipate what they're going to do and even throw it on the table that you are accepting the liability of this. When a critical mass of physicians are doing things like that, that's when things are going to change because what the third parties rely on is our rolling over and just doing it. Not only was it not enjoyable for you to do that 20 minutes of work, it was completely uncompensated. And it was you doing work on the behalf of the pharmacy benefit manager or the insurance company, whatever it was, to reduce their expenses. (laughs) So you're doing unpaid work for them to reduce their expenses. And we again and again, just say, I guess I just have to do this. And we do that because we want to help our patients. But if you don't push back ever while still getting your patients what they need, that's where we get into the situation we are now where the pendulum has swung so far. So I applaud you for doing that. I can learn from that. I have done Similar things, but with less tact, for sure, in medical (laughs) records, where I've been so frustrated. But I think that's a brilliant and beautiful and well-stated and easy thing to just always put in because it's always the same language when it's appropriate. And it's just your way of saying, this isn't okay. You are going above and beyond for your patients right now because A, you want to, B, I'm sure it makes you happy. It gives you gratification. C, it is ultimately a good investment in your practice and your business because you're providing a high quality product. And when you get to a point where enough people want to see you that the product might deteriorate, you're going to figure out a way. Do we put a stop on it? Do I hire someone else? How do we figure this out to still make it the dapper dermatology product rather than something else because we just happen to have a lot of uh, potential clients now. Um, I think we're going to see a a very big change in how healthcare is delivered in the Mm -hmm. U.S. in the coming years because large health systems have been able to keep up with some of the bureaucratic changes, right? Because hospital systems have done a better job of of negotiating higher rates. So they can hire another nurse or secretarial position to do prior authorizations and to keep up on the ridiculousness of things. Private practices are not equipped to do that, at least if you're in the traditional insurance-based model. It's too expensive. I was shocked this year to see how many practices were talking about how high their overhead has gotten. Mm-hmm. We're talking 55, 60, 65%, which traditionally it's been under 50. Yeah. 
And that's because of inflation and, and certainly increased bureaucratic costs. Yeah. And I think, unfortunately, it's it's pushing a lot of us to make these decisions about direct pay versus insurance in the private space. Yeah. And that may become the unfortunate new reality. I hope it doesn't. I hope that at some point, and I've seen a little more discussion about it actually this year, specifically, I, I'm not saying Democratic or Republican, but yeah. watching the Republican debates, I've been actually pretty encouraged to see how many people have been talking about needing to crack down on the insurance companies because they're simply not following through on their contracts. Something I was chatting with my partner about is the fact that he was like, if they're not listening to you or following through on their end of the contract, why don't you just tell them they're breaking the contract? It's the difference between Cigna, United, Blue Cross Blue Shield that are a multi-billion dollar company with multi-billion dollar profits versus mom and pop dermatology yeah. company that might be bringing in, if you're one dermatologist, maybe your company is bringing in a rev or a, a net amount of money of a mm-hmm. million or a million and a half, but that also pays all your staff salaries. It pays your own salary, the rent, the overhead, everything. So at the end of the day, we can't hire a great no. attorney to fight back when insurance breaks the contract. And if they don't pay for something, we have to decide, do we fight it and waste all that time? Yeah. Or do we just take it? And unfortunately, we just don't have the resources that we yeah. used to have. Yeah, absolutely. That's a big driver of the the direct care route. You you say, do I want to fight back? A, A, do I want to just roll over? B, do I want to fight back? Do I have the resources to fight back? C, do I just want to leave them behind, (laughs) work around it? And that doesn't feel like an unethical option to us because we know cost-wise, it's no different and it's usually less expensive to the system or to the whole in terms of the cost of a direct care physician because there are so few people taking bites of it out of the middle. So the cost doesn't have to be so high and there's less overhead as well. That's the decision that we all have to make and there is movement on all sides. So there's movement towards direct care. There's movement towards cracking down on insurance companies. There's just a lot of movement because we're at this tipping point where the pendulum has swung so far that even patients are beginning to realize that it's the insurance companies or it, it's the big hospital corporations that are absorbing all of these small practices and just becoming monopolistic or oligopolistic, at least. Uh, so it does feel exciting to be in healthcare during a tipping point like this because so much change is happening and that allows innovators like you and me to have opportunities uh, because there is so much dissatisfaction uh, with the current product and room for innovation. So that's exciting. I've changed my mindset a lot about being in medicine. You, you can be really just down and out about this time in medicine, or you can flip it on its head and say, there's so much opportunity because there are so many dissatisfied people in the market waiting to be served by someone who opens an innovative virtual direct care practice in North Dakota that can serve anyone in the entire state. And yeah, you can't do a full body skin check. Someone else can do that. But someone has psoriasis that is just absolutely ruining their life. You could change that person's life without ever shaking their hand. And that, so we, we really need that. And I'm excited that you're doing it. You mentioned messaging with your patients I could see uh, when I was on your website that you use Jane. Is that correct for your yes. for at least your booking and the EMR? Does the messaging come through that, or do you use a separate service provider to message? So this goes back to like when you're setting up your direct pay practice and yeah. you're picking all the yeah. different tools and functionality. Mm-hmm. So when I picked Jane, I actually thought initially it had messaging in it, and okay. then I learned once I was setting things up, I was like, uh oh, how mm-hmm. am I going to do this? Yeah. But 
thankfully, I think for people even that use like Emma or modernizing medicine or easy derm, the reality is that there's messaging in it, but it's not good messaging. Like yeah. it's the dreaded inbox. Yeah. Initially, I was like, okay, this, how am I going to work around this? And I stumbled into a couple conversations about different um, HIPAA compliant voice messaging systems and text messaging systems. So I initially, I signed about two or three weeks after I picked Jane with a company called Citricom that does HIPAA compliant texting. And so when people make an appointment through Dapper Dermatology on Jane, they will get a welcome email and in there it gives them instructions to text photos of their skin condition that we're treating to the number that is my Citricom system. And the nice thing about that is that the texting goes directly to my phone or directly to my computer. So it's much easier for me to respond on the fly too, if I need to, I don't have to even log into the EMR. It just comes directly to me. And the other thing I like about it is that patients love the convenience of texting. At the end of the day, we're all super busy. It's hard to get on the phone and to call a practice, go through the dreaded phone tree, which we don't have. It's (laughs) only two buttons and you talk to a human. But the the ability, I think, and the convenience of texting has become so normal to our society that if patients can text you and get a response back, they love it. Hmm. To talk briefly about going under the hood of Mm -hmm. like how I did all of this. So I did... The whole product that you see online for my practice, I did from beginning to end. So I built the Dapper Dermatology website on Squarespace. I taught myself how to do it, which was very humbling as a physician to try to navigate that type of technology. But I got through (laughs) it. I then did all the research to pick out what EMR. I picked Jane because Jane was one, very adaptable. I played around with it doing some demo work and just realized that I could make this where a note can take me like three clicks to do mm-hmm. versus having to type out a hundred million different things yes. every time, even in modernizing medicine. And when you don't take insurance, the beauty is that your documentation can be super brief. It's yours. <laughs> what yeah. it's supposed to be, it's, is, yeah, right? It's, it's supposed to be like patients are like, why are you in your computer? It's not yeah. supposed to do your depression screening, your alcohol, your smoking yeah. screening, all these things that don't I'm matter. trying to get someone else to pay for you being here. <laughs> That's exactly. why I'm in my computer, yeah. Yes, so yeah. they think that we don't want to be engaged, but the reality is, no, I would rather spend 20 minutes talking to you about your acne and how yeah. changing your diet and potentially adding metformin maybe <laughs> maybe great options. And patients love that too. So anyway, that's why I picked Jane. It was also way cheaper. Like Emma, for all the things you have to do to bill out to insurance, they are charging like $1,500 to $1,800 a month now, I think. Jane was 100 bucks. Yeah. It was a no-brainer. It doesn't have e-prescribing built in, so mm-hmm. I got MD Toolbox for yeah. that. That's $30 a month. And it's a little annoying because you have to add every patient into it individually, but that takes me two minutes and I can spend two minutes of time to save a couple hundred dollars mm-hmm. over the course of a month. So I integrated Jane into the website, got the texting set up. I think the the next hardest thing to do, especially with it being a virtual practice, was to think about how do you let people know this exists and market it effectively. And I still will tell you that's probably my biggest learning curve right now. I got more active on social media and I still have a lot of contacts back in North Dakota. And so I, I reached out to as many people as I possibly could have. I've started to run some digital advertising through Google. I have done some local advertising with the magazine. I appeared on the local news as well on TV. Even in talking to my digital advertisers about this, I do think that word of mouth and that personal connection is still so important to our craft, which is ironic because it's 2023, everything is online. You can be a social media influencer with 100,000 followers, but at the end of the day, when people are picking a dentist, a doctor, whatever it is in healthcare, 
someone having something positive to say about that person is still, I think, the number one dictator of who shows up at your door. And it's been pleasantly a surprise, too, that as this has unfolded, more and more people have reached out to me personally through texting or through social media and said, like, I'm going to share this with somebody and let them know that you're doing this. I had a patient recently who saw me and she told me that when she called to get in to be seen for a rash in North Dakota, that the wait time was six months. And that's why she ended up coming to see me instead. Mm -hmm. And the thing that makes me feel good about what I've built so far is that it seems like the response back when I asked people, how was the process of going through this visit? Was there anything that was confusing? Do you feel like it was a good use of your money? Because they can see the cost of everything Mm -hmm. I'm doing. Do you think the cost justified the service provided? And thankfully, so far, people have said, no, this was amazing. This was so much easier. It was so much less confusing. I didn't get any surprise bills at the end. What you put on the website, that's how much the visit cost and you followed through on your obligations that I would expect as a physician. So that part feels really good. Yeah, that's called value. You created value and your people are saying it and not everyone is going to feel that way in the end. And that's okay too, because when you're building a business, you're trying to serve a subset of people. You cannot serve everyone. You're not meant to serve everyone, but your people are finding you and they are recognizing you for the value you're providing and knowing what you charge. A lot of people are probably thinking that was a bargain. Like this guy's great. He really knows his stuff. I saw him the next day or that day, whatever it was. He talked to me about not only did you're ta- you're telling talking to people who, who have acne about metformin. You're probably talking to them about sleep, about stress, about mindfulness, about nutrition. And they're like, oh my, who is this guy? And it's been more than 30 seconds and he's still here. So it's, no doubt that they would consider that a bargain. I think there's a lot of promise in this type of uh, model and you're probably having a good time while you're doing it because you're not worried about the the waiting room being full of patients and you have you're with someone who you really want to take care of but you have three other people waiting in rooms looking at their watches and just getting more and more frustrated at you before they've yeah. even met you. And that is, unfortunately, the life that a lot of us live day in and day out, only to make less and less money on each one of those visits every year because of essentially because of inflation and the constraints of the third party payer system. Uh, So it feels good to be valued and uh, physicians undervalue themselves a lot. Not all of us do, but a lot of us do. It feels good to be recognized for what you're providing. But that's a two-way street. You have to provide a good service, a high-quality service. And if you don't, you're going to hear about it because it's dapper dermatology. It's Dr. Adam Swigos. That's your baby, and you're going to be the one responsible for that if someone is not having a good experience with your product. The word-of-mouth advertising is so important, but it's an exponential curve. So at the, the beginning of it, you're not going to see much, of course. But I love that you're experiencing with digital advertising. I love that you're thinking about marketing. Doctors, in general, don't love Marketing, I think they have a lot of misconceptions about it. They think branding and marketing are the same thing. They think anything that has to do with marketing is icky or whatever, but that's because we've bought into this model of, I don't need to market myself because the insurance company just feeds me more patients than I could ever possibly imagine taking care of. But when you 
step out into a model like this, that's no longer happening. So you are responsible for getting people in the door. I love that you went on the local news, the magazines. Tell me a little bit about your experience with the paid advertising so far. You mentioned some Google advertising you've done. Have you learned any little bits from your small foray into that anything at all? Yeah, so far. So I've been doing, so we started the digital ads probably about a month ago now, and it has been slow. Like a digital ad hasn't converted a patient for me yet. That's the reality. Mm -hmm. I think there's multiple reasons for that. And when you're, when you have a business that doesn't have a physical location, it is a slower ramp up. Um, And it's more difficult because when patients Google, Google drives patients to places with physical locations, right? So you have to, what I've learned the most about, honestly, has been about search engine optimization, um, search engine management, and trying to create websites and blogs and ads that will hopefully help to draw people to your product. Mm -hmm. But I do think for those people that are maybe considering doing something similar to what we're doing, the value of going out and doing local advertising and trying to meet people and do word of mouth based activities is totally invaluable. Mm -hmm. And you have to make the time and figure out a way to do it. The reason, again, another reason that I went back to North Dakota is that I grew up there and I was educated there. And I still consider myself a North Dakotan because it's just, it's who I am. And I felt like I know how to navigate the infrastructure that's there and to connect with people and utilize the resources I have to try to create a good space for people. But that is a unique challenge, I would say. I would also argue that something that unfortunately medical education hasn't caught up to is that we there should be more um, emphasis put on to helping medical students and actually all healthcare professionals understand the economic environment that they en- they're entering into mm-hmm. in insur- working with insurance, working with a hospital. You're not just working for the hospital, you're working with the hospital. If you went into a medical classroom and asked them, do you know what a premium is? Do you know what a copay is? Do you know what coinsurance is? Do you know what a deductible is? There are probably less than 10% of that medical school class is really going to be able to answer those questions coherently. Mm -hmm. And people would say, that's not the job of physicians. And that's what got us into this mess in the first that we basically, as you said, we were like, the insurance company takes care of that, or the Mm -hmm. hospital takes care of that. And that's fine if everybody- It is a trade-off and it's okay if everyone has the same ethics as us, which is that we're so focused on taking care of people that we just want to focus on the patient. And unfortunately, I think what we've learned is that we can't do that. Anyway, sorry, that's to go off topic. But the reality is with marketing, it is still very much for me a learning situation. But I do think that for healthcare, we're still not in a time where anything is more valuable than word of mouth. And you need Mm -hmm. to see those first 10 to 15 people that have a great experience, they'll sing your praises and you'll get busy from there. Yeah, beautiful. I like that you are being open to just having the paid stuff. It needs time, first of all, and you need data, you need feedback, you need to listen to that data and tweak things. And you're not going to be spending $10,000 a month on digital ads from the beginning. You're a little bit and you figure it out and go from there. But that other side of marketing, that's more of just getting out there, getting, get in the arena, conventional marketing. It's still really important, especially for our trade, as you said. I had a conversation with someone else about this. Once you accept the fact that certain things you just have to do to have a successful business, all ethical things, it's almost like a cheat code if you do them because so many people just don't want to do them. 
you, you don't want to get, get involved with the chamber of commerce, get in your local magazine, go on local TV, uh, yes. d- bring your card to uh, all the direct primary care doctors that you can find or, or insurance based primary care as well. Uh, talk to people. That's just what most people aren't willing to do. Uh, build your email list if you're someone who's interested in that and, and interested in leveraging yourself in other ways. That just simply takes work. Generating leads takes a lot of work. And that's where most people aren't willing to, to aren't going to do it. it. There's no magic in it. It's just a lot of work. And eventually that pays off. It's all asymmetric, but I find that stuff is enjoyable. Once you commit to it, it can be fun. Going on the local news can be fun. And it's just all about the way you approach it. And even if it's not feeling fun that day, just still go do it. And and that's what's going to make your business successful ultimately. Are you involved with your, is there a local chamber of commerce in your town or city? So yeah, in North Dakota, there's one for every major city. Yeah. And so that's something else that I'm trying to engage with. But all of these things also cost yeah. There's with all of yeah. these things. You're in the space of trying to balance yeah. and the tough thing too, I think, to talk about barriers to entry mm-hmm. for people going into to care. I'm obviously young to be considering opening my own practice, period. And the barriers to entry are that you have to have savings. Maybe I'm working some locum still. You have to pay down your debts. And one thing that was really important to me when I was finishing my residency was to get out of debt as quickly as possible. So I was able to pay my medical school debt off in just one year. That's in part because I went to really cheap state schools yeah. and ha- and was intelligent with how I planned my education. So that gave me more flexibility. I do think that's something I would advocate for a lot of physicians. It doesn't matter if you're just in your first five years of practice or you're 15 years into practice. If you're still holding on to a huge mortgage or you're holding on to a ton of educational debt, those are handcuffs that don't allow us to actively negotiate. And in fact, I would argue one of the reasons that hospital systems and private equity systems have been so effectual at taking over medicine is that doctors, we really struggle to manage money appropriately. And so if a private equity company, like in my situation, comes in and buys your practice and you're like, I just bought a new Tesla and I have a $750,000 mortgage, guess what? You can't quit. And in my case, I'm always cautiously optimistic whenever I enter into a a business agreement, which would be employment. Mm. And so I think you should have the mindset of have that emergency fund ready and don't feel like you have to be sold into a situation you don't want to be in. If you don't feel like it's reflective of your values and your ethics, you will find another job. You'll find another way to make income, but you need to set yourself up for success in case that ever does happen. That's great advice, uh, insuring against those risks that might not happen, but certainly might. And with things that allow you to continue building this thing that you ultimately are doing partly for income, but more so for if it was all about just you just wanted income, just have a job, but you want all the happiness, but all autonomy time freedom, maybe geographic freedom, all of those things that people uh, tend to ultimately associate with happiness. But you want to build your business in a way that is true to you so that you can also be happy doing your business and and working both in and on your business. And that at the beginning is going to take a lot of sacrifice. You're going to make a lot less income than you would if you just had a job. But you said you work some locum. So you added that leg to your financial table. You you might have another business on the side and whatever it happens to be. You might do some consulting for for pharmaceutical industry or a venture capital firm or whatever. We have medical license 
licenses are, are a valuable thing and, and we have a lot of expertise that we can leverage, uh, but it's important to not rely on this fledgling baby business that needs our attention at all times of the day uh, because it is a baby uh, to not expect that baby to be walking in three days and then talking in two weeks and so it has to you have to allow it to go through that progression and figure out other means of of income along the way so you don't have to force that baby to be something eventually turns into this monster that you were running away from in the first place so that's that is very good advice and good for you for paying off your loans uh, so quickly that takes a lot of discipline and an intentional way of living especially after you've already deferred so much gratification through medical school and residency and all of that is your partner in medicine outside of medicine because there's a lot of complications with that if it's outside of medicine they're like when the heck is this thing going to finally take off if they're in medicine then you're balancing two people doing this crazy job. So if you don't mind telling me a little bit about that. He's in the nonprofit world. Okay. So like healthcare adjacent though. So yeah. when we talk about these things, he is he more gets it, at least. most about okay. it. He's been very patient also, because I will say the last year has been very, maybe you feel similar. It's been very stressful. Yeah. I, I don't think that undertaking this journey of whether you take insurance or not, if you mm -hmm. try to start a practice or a business it really does just take so much yeah. time and energy. And there's always something coming up. Even today, before I was going to join you here, it's like I realized I left my charger at the office that yeah. I'm doing locums at. And yeah. so I'm like trying to find a charger and it was like all stressful. So it's like there's just always some, and like your brain is going in 10 different directions yeah. every day. But that said, I find it to be extremely rewarding because I recognize that this can become something really great. And being so young, I think you just know it has to go that way. So for him, he has been really patient, which I appreciate. He's been really supportive. He definitely has taken on different roles to allow me to dedicate more time to this because even in the evening when I'm done working locums or when I'm on my days off, like I'm all engrossed in trying to make sure that these things get done the way that they should. And it just, yeah. it takes time. For sure. And I love that you have a supportive partner who understands. And we as business owners need to understand that that only goes so far. If that person's cup gets so empty, the result of you trying to do your thing, even though your thing that you're building is ultimately going to benefit both of you. When you're feeding your business, your relationship is going to suffer. When you're feeding your relationship, your business is going to suffer. What we need to remember is that we can't always just be feeding the business, always making the relationship suffer and relying on that support that we are very lucky to have. We know in our minds and in our hearts that long-term, everything's gonna be much better if we nurture that intimate relationship, but it's really hard to not just go to that 100 item to-do list in the business, especially when you're very early on. So yes. being mindful of and compassionate for yourself, but don't get too far off on the feeding the business and not feeding the relationship part. Otherwise, the, they will both go down in flames, not just one of them. And I think there are always critical moments that happen where things rebalance. Yeah. I've definitely gone through several of them <laughs> in the last couple of weeks and months, yeah, but it has been a good learning experience, I think, to go through all the things that I've gone through very mm -hmm. early in my career because it has taught, it has been a good reminder that we all go into medicine 
I think with the, the a feeling of it's almost like a calling and it's something that's really important to us to fulfill like this creative and nurturing need to be there for other human beings. But we also have to take the time and, and feed that energy back to ourselves. Yeah. And so it's really taught me that at, at certain points during the day, I just close the laptop, I turn my phone off, and I'm trying to be more intentional about taking time to support my own well-being, my own wellness, and not just have it be work, which unfortunately, most of us as doctors are, are conditioned to only think about work. Absolutely. Good for you. That is a challenge for all of us. I think we are all working at it to different degrees and hopefully getting better and better at it. And that what you said about just having a time, close the laptop, boundaries, nothing's going to ever feel like it's done. But if you think about time constraints and I don't have time for this, that people will often, in terms of meditation, for instance, people will say the people who say they don't have time to meditate are the ones who need to meditate. I am not speaking from a self-righteous perspective here. My morning routine is not 20 minutes of meditation and 20 minutes on the bike. I wish it was, but it it is not right now. Uh, Maybe someday it, it will be. But knowing that in the end, if you're shooting for long-term goals and you're keeping your why in mind and knowing that closing that laptop is the right decision at that time, even if there are a couple of th- more things you feel like you needed to do, and the more the better we get at that, the better all of the things in our life that we want to, all the pillars that we want to fulfill and all the cups that we want to be filling at different times but keep generally full, uh, we'll do a better job at that. Um, I, I was looking at your website. First of all, great. Uh, it, it even looks better today than it did a couple of weeks ago. And the fact that you have done all of this yourself, I, I use words for it as a humbling, absolutely humbling activity, but fun. You get to learn a new thing and, and there's real creative aspects about it. And when you do it yourself, you have con- total control over it. So good for you doing that. You it mentioned some on the about you section, mentioned some things you're involved in outside of your direct clinic. And I saw in there the Gay and Lesbian Dermatology or Dermatologists Association, which is it? Dermatology. Association. Dermatology Association. Can you tell me a little bit about that? I was glad to learn that is a thing, mm-hmm. but is it a, what's, how are you involved? It, if there are dermatologists out there who may identify with that, but don't know that exists, tell us a bit about it. And I would just love to know more. And I'm glad that you're participating in that, giving back in that way. Yeah. So I didn't know that it existed either until I think I was in my final year of residency where I may have seen the booth at AAD. And then when I moved to Atlanta and took my first job, Harold Brody, like the peel guru, he's there (laughs) and he encouraged me as well to get involved in it. So that's really where my connection point was. And I also wanted to get involved for the purpose of letting patients know that this is something I'm passionate about. I'm a member of the LGBTQ community and I wanted to be available and and just be more present for that population of patients. And it's been fascinating to see how many LGBTQ inclusive patients have found me just because of having that on my bio and being involved in the organization especially starting this practice back in North Dakota in particular, like a lot of people are like, why didn't you just go back to North Dakota and and start working and hang a shingle up and, and do the whole thing? And this is going to get a little political. I apologize, okay. but no. North Dakota is a really hard place to be a part of the LGBTQ community. It was a very oppressive place to be educated and grow, especially when I was not out. And it's 
was it was a challenge on top of how stressful medical education and getting into med school already was to also be dealing with trying to figure out your own identity and to feel accepted and safe in the places you were going. Many people don't know this, but in North Dakota, you can lose your apartment or your home for being gay. You can be fired for being gay. There was a lot of press about many laws that were being discussed at the legislature this last year. And on top of that, North Dakota is a small state, about 750,000 people. I know people in the legislature, like they're mm -hmm. friends, they're people I went to school with, they're people that I at certain points coached or mentored in the community too. And to see how people voted says everything. And so when I started Dapper Dermatology, one of the first resources I reached out to was trying to reach out to different organizations in North Dakota that supported the LGBTQ population there. And so I've had a couple of really awesome conversations with people in behavioral health services in particular who work with the LGBTQ population. And so for me, I just discussed with them, part of the reason I'm doing this is that I recognize in North Dakota, it can be really challenging to find a healthcare provider who understands you and who can just meet you where you are. There's many patients I see that come in and you probably see it too, right? We see a lot of people that come in with issues in the groin area, mm -hmm. in the buttock area, or that are dealing with more personal yeah. health issues that are uncomfortable to discuss. And when a patient doesn't have to explain as much about their personal habits or doesn't have to explain as much about maybe a product that they've used yeah. or have had a reaction to something that maybe is related to a sexual activity and they mm -hmm. can just talk about it but not have to do that extra aerodynamic flip in the air, <laughs> it creates much more a sense of comfort. And for me, in understanding how difficult that situation was for me growing up and for finding a provider and a, a physician that could relate to me. I, I want to be that for people who, who are having trouble finding those resources. I'm obviously, I am just a dermatologist. I'm not a cardiologist. I'm not a, a gastroenterologist. I really believe in staying in your healthcare lane and practicing medicine as safely as possible. But it's nice to be able to, even if I can't answer all their healthcare questions and I need some other resources, it's nice that patients feel more comfortable mm -hmm. talking to me about those issues. And you can advocate for them. If you're not the person to know, you might know someone and say, hey, this person here is a great person for you. They will speak your language. They're going to be able to relate to you and they can help you with th this cardiology issue or whatever you mentioned. Right. I hope it continues to grow in that way because that's to me the most meaningful part of, of this job um, is when you really make a difference for a patient. All the other stuff, we talk obviously direct patient care, we talk a lot about money transparency and the financial aspect of how medicine is changing. But at the end of the day, by actually making it more transparent, I don't have to worry about that as much. And I can really get back to focusing on just like, how do I help the person sitting in front of me and devote all my time, energy and resources to that rather than all the noise around yeah. healthcare. That's absolutely true. I want to be respectful of your time. So I'm going to move on soon to a couple uh, specific questions I have for you that I've thought about along the way. But I want to stick on that for a second, because it, when you go into direct care, it doesn't mean you're going to double your income from the job you had or something like that. This is a way of actually doing the thing that we went into medicine to do in a way that is sustainable and actually enjoyable and allows us to do it rather than just to wish we could do it while we were doing all these other things that are necessary to just get paid whatever you happen to be getting paid or, or not get fired if you're an employee. So what it really comes down to is the fewer 
clients you are taking care of, the more time and energy you have for each of them. And unfortunately, that limits us. So you and I are not going to be seeing 40 or 60 patients a day in our practices, but we will hopefully be taking care of those people who have more complicated things to discuss with us or, or more nuanced stories or things that do take a longer time. There is lots of stuff in dermatology that does take five minutes. There's no reason to deny that there are certain things that you don't need to be in the room for a half an hour to resolve in a way that still feels good. But there are many people who are not being served by the current insurance-based system, uh, and they are out there for us to serve. And I love that you're doing that work and giving back to the community that you identify with because of the ways that you struggled. I I can only imagine uh, growing up in North Dakota like you did, uh, describing those laws that you mentioned and just the difficulty of navigating that. But it's amazing that you can now give back in these ways. I wrote a post on LinkedIn yesterday that was about speaking their language. There's a ZocDoc ad on TV, and it's a woman. She looks very satisfied as a patient, and she says, Dr. Stafford just speaks my language, something like that. And people care about that. And if you can talk to a patient about it, they don't have to be like, there's, I don't know, the, and they just know he's going to know what I'm talking about. And that is so meaningful to them. And they don't have to do that aerial kind of move that you described. It just puts them in a comfort zone that they're not often afforded in society, even though we've come a long way, but we still have a lot, a lot long way to go. So that's wonderful. I saw something else that I need to ask you about. You, my friend, are an Eagle Scout, and I want to know what your project was. And if you don't want me to tell me about it, that's okay. But I thought it was fun. No, you know what's funny is that I've had that on my resume at <laughs> yeah. one point, and then my partner and I got into an argument about this because he was like, "I don't think you need to have that on there." And I was oh, like, yes, "Everyone wants to know about it." <laughs> I, yeah, it's fun. So I, um, it. I planted. I want to say it was like around a hundred trees at the Game and Fish Department's pond in my awesome. hometown. It was cool because they were making this kind of like sanctuary area at the edge of the city. And so that was what was involved. Mm -hmm. I do remember that was such a family undertaking. (laughs) It is crazy, right? Like you're like having these 15, 16 year old, I mean, I'm going to say kids because I Mm -hmm. still felt like a kid for sure. sure. But we're like coordinating these massive projects and they do genuinely take months to pull Mm -hmm. everything off. And just the everything that went into being a Boy Scout and all the responsibility, it was definitely really hard. But looking back, I'm so glad that I had those early experiences to teach me so much about the responsibility and the tenacity it takes to get something big done because it Mm -hmm. it feeds right into, I think, a lot of what we do in medicine now. No doubt. That's invaluable that you had that experience so early. And one of the reasons I asked about it is because I always admired some, I was not in scouts, but when I would pass a, a stairway with a bench near it on a trail and it said Eagle Scout Project, this, and it had their name on it, I would stop and admire that because I knew how young this person was, first of all, when they were doing that. It seemed like it took a lot to become an Eagle Scout and do a project like that at such a young age. So I admire that. Thank you for sharing that. I want to go under the hood just a little uh, bit. We already touched on it a bit, but I want to ask about some tools that you use for your patients. I know that you offer Regimen Pro, for instance, and I will be doing that as well. I love the philosophy of that business. I like that it was founded by dermatologists. I like the people who are making it work on a day-to-day basis now. Have you found people enjoying that service or interacting with it much yet? I know your business is very young, so it's okay to also say that yeah nobody has engaged with that yet and that's okay because you are a brand new business the whole 
process with Dapper Dermatology. I knew I wanted to make everything online as mm -hmm. easy as possible. We wanted yeah. as much. I don't like the word direct to consumer because direct to consumer for healthcare when it's not run by physicians yes. has a lot of problems, but <laughs> direct to the consumer yeah. for skincare as possible. Yeah. I'll bring you right. back to talk about hymns and hers and apostrophe and all, all of the. <laughs> yeah. And Amazon, I mean, Roman, Amazon, Amazon clinic. Amazon yes, clinic. For sure. I mean, yeah. like it, it's a hot mess express. Yeah, there. That's the truth. Yeah, $30 <laughs> to have and not even see a oh, healthcare no. provider, no. just beyond. Yeah. But Regimen Pro has been great. And so yeah. I, for the first time, got to see Dr. Downey speak, who's mm -hmm. one of the partner founders of yeah. Regimen Pro. She spoke at Cosmetic Bootcamp in June, and that was the first time I had ever seen her speak. I did not go and introduce myself to her, but I, I'm a huge fan. And so knowing that she was involved in Regimen Pro and then my experiences with everyone there, I love the philosophy, like you said. Mm -hmm. um, I've had two patients utilize products from them or get it delivered, and they, mm -hmm. they love, one, they love the products they pick are definitely ones that are popular with dermatologists. I yeah. hate the word medical grade skincare. It's not a thing. Yeah. And it's not, but I like yeah. that they have, they, they have products for all price points. Yeah. And you can create a really fabulous routine of good products that patients with their mm -hmm. skin type can tolerate with their offerings. Yeah. Another company that I use really heavily, I use skin medicinals all the time. Mm -hmm. They're great. Again, physician focused, physician led yeah. company with products that really work. And then the last company I use is I do use a ton of skin V products as I saw well. That. Yeah. I'd like um, to hear a little bit more about that. I, I don't know the sort of elevator pitch for that one. Skin V used to go by another name. I'm blanking on what the name was before, but they have always done these specialty compounded prescription okay. products. They have a huge menu offering of what's available. Okay. If you wanted to just prescribe topicals from Skin V, you probably could. They have a couple of cult products I love. So they have a sulfa wash and they have a rosacea <sighs> topical of Metrogel and Ivermectin. Nice. I have probably prescribed more of that for rosacea than anything else in the last 12 months. And the thing is patients love it. They are so satisfied. And I have the before and after photos from clinical practice where awesome. I know it works. And when you are telling a patient, hey, you can get Sulantra, which is the brand of Iver Ivermectin topical mm -hmm. for 250 bucks at your pharmacy, or we can send this to Skin V and you're going to yeah. get it for 50, it's a no brainer. And then it alleviates the burden on me. I'm not having to do a prior authorization or make yeah. extra calls to CVS or what have you when patients are like, this is crazy. So it also makes the practice of medicine so much smoother. Yes. In Georgia, where I was practicing, you could actually carry the products in your physical clinic mm -hmm. because in, in the state of Georgia, there was not seen to be a conflict between us carrying pharmaceutical products and being able to dispense them directly to patients. But that's a state by state yes. issue. But if you're mailing them direct from Skin V, you can mail them direct from Skin V anywhere in the country. Same with Skin Medicinals and the Regimen Pro is not prescription. Obviously, that's easy. Those can go anywhere. Cool. Thank you for that. I didn't even know that's going to be dealing in prescriptions, much skin medicinals and many wonderful compounding pharmacies that we now have access to, which have really changed the game in both price transparency, avoiding those prior authorizations, getting patients things like a generic form of Sulantra. All that stuff is so great, especially for tough things like rosacea. I love that I have a new sulfa product to look into for rosacea. That's great. The patients get it right away. The 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 pharmacies tend to have good customer service because like us, they're relatively small businesses. They want to give a good service. I'm also considering working uh, with Thorn. Is there any, maybe one product that you happen to, Thorn is a company that sells, I guess you would say supplements. I don't know. It's a word that comes with a lot of connotations, but 
people remember vitamin D is also a supplement. And for some reason, nobody has much of a problem with saying that they take vitamin D. So let's be level-headed about this and tell me a little bit about something you like from Thorne. Yeah, my when I was in residency, my biggest mentor was someone who I would say practiced a lot of integrative dermatology. Yes, I, love I learned a ton about the role of supplements in certain skin conditions. Mm -hmm. And I'm a big fan of it because there's one, there's evidence to back it up, not for everything, but there's mm -hmm. a lot of evidence to back it up for certain conditions. But the biggest thing is finding patients a safe product to use and finding one that's convenient. So the biggest supplements I'll recommend to people, one, niacinamide or nicotinamide, I recommend it pretty much every single day to patients that helps reduce the risk of those precancerous lesions, actinic keratoses. There's evidence it can also be beneficial in reducing the incidence of non-melanoma skin cancer. Now it does come with side effects, all supplements do. So I always give the caveat, you should not be starting a supplement without seeing your physician talking about how it may interact with other health conditions. Good idea. For nicotinamide in particular, I've had at least three or four patients who were pre-diabetic and it pushed them into the world of diabetes. So we mm. took them off of it for that reason. But that's why you have these conversations. Yeah. The other product that I love to use is the zinc and copper supplements from Thorne. One, they're a great price point. They come in bulk where patients can be on them for three months without interruptions. They don't have to keep ordering every okay. single month. Their customer service is really good. And I think the price point is approachable for the vast majority of patients, which is, I think the thing with certain supplements, it's like, why is this supplement $150? And they'll have a re it was formulated in some way. And just truthfully, I'm like, I don't really care. I would never spend $150 myself. Fair enough. So. Great. Thank you for uh, giving some actionable tips about that, both for myself, others listening to this. I think integrative dermatology is only going to become more and more the norm, I hope, for uh, for dermatology. And it should be. There's We have to take these things uh, with a bit of skepticism. We have to look for the evidence where it's available, but also uh, just be willing to learn and Integrative dermatology does not just mean supplements. It means talking about sleep, talking about stress, talking about the quality of your relationships, talking about nutrition, and then supplements play a role in there. But you need to learn about it, think about it, and you need to be on a supplement always, or you're a mess right now. You need to be on a, a supplement or two to get out of that really messy area that you're in. And then we get back again, the minimum, just like a pharmaceutical drug, the minimum amount for the shortest duration possible is what we're shooting for. Uh, and I think for physicians to too, like owning the space from yes. an ethics and yeah. a evidence-based practice point of view, I'm sure you see it a lot, but med spas have become oh, yeah. the norm everywhere. Yeah. And I see patients that will come in with the good, the bad, and the ugly after going to the med spa or telling me things that they were told at the med spa. Yeah. And it's always quite fascinating because I'm like, there's not evidence or data for the thing that you're doing. Yeah. And so one big thing that physicians have and that we need to maintain is that integrity. And so when we are recommending things to our patients and when we are doing procedures, whether they're cosmetic or surgical or what have you, the great thing is our training has instilled in us we're doing this for a reason. There's a paper, no. there's a data point somewhere that's helping us to guide that patient to the best outcome possible. 
beautiful. You don't want to just be a good salesperson. You should be a good salesperson because you want to change behavior. But the ethical part of that is backing it up with something that you actually believe is going to help them in addition to generating revenue for whatever it's generating revenue for. If anyone wants to learn more about integrative dermatology, Dr. Swigost already has a lot of training in it, which is great. I think more and more people are going to be able, we all want to talk about this stuff. That's what I believe. Just we don't all have time to talk about it. And patients want to hear about it. As soon as you start talking to someone about these types of things, they light up because they're like, oh my gosh, I didn't expect my dermatologist to be giving me tips on sleeping and telling me how it affects my skin and how my mental health affects my skin and my gut health and all of these things. So that is great. Other great resources, Dr. Peter Leo, he has an integrative dermatology for eczema clinic, and he's a wonderful leader in this field. There's a podcast called Learn Skin. Dermatologists, integrative dermatologists run that. And there's a lot of training online that you could get for integrative dermatology if you're interested in learning more. The last thing I want to give us a little pearl on, if you're willing, you mentioned earlier, I think acne and metformin. I would love to hear a little bit of an elevator pitch or maybe a patient case that you recall that it really was helpful. That's something that I have not integrated into my practice yet, but have thought a lot about and would love to if I find the right cases for it. And I can talk about it in a way that is responsible and from an educated perspective. So I would love to hear your take on it and what your experience has been. So I think one of the things that I've really gravitated towards and seen in clinical practice, again, in my young career practicing independently, is the role that inflammation tied to insulin sensitivity in particular has had for people. In my clinic, my acne, psoriasis, eczema patients, rosacea patients, all these conditions that maybe we put into that umbrella of inflammatory skin conditions. And HS probably too, right? Hydradenitis suppurativa. Yes. So like these conditions, I am always talking about diet. Now I ask patients, did it flare? Did you have a change in your diet? What's your diet like? What are you eating? And patients really buy in because it is a physical manifestation of choices they're making. Like you don't see your blood pressure. Like that's the more important variable here, but you don't see atherosclerotic cardiovascular disease, but you see the impact it can have on your skin. So for me, I am one, encouraging dietary changes with all of those patients. We're having that conversation right away. I see metformin as being super valuable for HS. I've used it there multiple times, had a lot of benefit, especially women with hormonal acne that Mm -hmm. might have PCOS. We're having the conversation about metformin, especially if they maybe have had a prior poor reaction to isotretinoin, which is Accutane, or to spironolactone. I love spironolactone as well. There's a ton of great data for that in multiple skin Mm -hmm. conditions, but that's a people I talk to about metformin. I would say at this point, I've started a handful of people on metformin for those conditions and they have done well on it. The challenges with metformin are mostly just the GI upset that comes with it because even at a low dose, I have patients that will come back and be like, man, the first two to three weeks were brutal and I almost Mm. wanted to stop it. Uh, But there's a lot of leaders, I think, in our field now, like Dr. Doris Day from New York. She's talked a lot about both for anti-inflammation, but just for anti-aging purposes or skin rejuvenation purposes as Mm -hmm. well. So I think we're going to see more and more people utilizing metformin off-label. Let's remember it is off-label. But I think if you do it intentionally and you have open and honest conversations with your patients about side effects, people are more motivated now than ever 
to utilize this medicine. And there's only more and more data coming to support it. Even Ozempic, right? What does Ozempic go back to? Insulin. Insulin resistance, insulin sensitivity. Insulin is amazingly involved in so many of the things that really drive chronic misery in terms of our health over the long term and healthcare expenditures. And as a dermatologist, you are not getting out of your lane. You're not saying I'm going to cure your atherosclerotic disease or, or, or help it or anything like that. But by convincing people to make these behavior changes because they want to do it for their skin, they are reducing their risk of coronary artery disease, of maybe Alzheimer's disease, uh, diabetes. All of those things are so interrelated that you are having that impact on them, even if that's not what you're selling and what you're directly trying to do, which is amazing. And their mood is going to be better. Everything is going to get better, but you're using the skin as the objective kind of goal, the skin improvement, uh, which is a fun part about being a dermatologist, that there's a lot of buy-in from patients because... They see their disease as, as opposed to blood pressure, like you mentioned, other things like that. And uh, I think so that's something we have to really buy into in dermatology. I had this conversation with a, with a mentor of mine from residency when I found out that the practice I was at had sold to private equity. And I said, a lot of dermatologists in the late 20th century, the 90s, the 80s, mm-hmm. going into the 2000s, they yeah. were very influential people because mm-hmm. they had great foresight they were innovative and they were creative. And in a big part, I think that was because we were in private practices. And dermatologists really could be those leaders in the community to try new things and have good outcomes because they were thinking about them from both an aesthetic and also from an objective scientific point of view. And the reason I bring this up is that now with so many dermatologists, with the, the model switching to us being employed, there is less room for dermatologists to be those people in a place where you have to see 40 or 50 people a day. So I hope that as we were talking about at the start, that the pendulum will really swing the other way because we are such intelligent individuals and patients are desperate to find people who want to talk about these issues on a deeper level. And if we get more leaders in our field in the next couple of years who are willing to step out and make the uncomfortable transition to whether it's being creative with how you work with insurance or Mm -hmm. going direct pay or what have you, I think there's a lot of promise for what we can do for patients and making a difference going forward. Again, as I said at the top of the show, I apologize that the last couple things that Dr. Swigost was going to say got cut off. I definitely will be having Dr. Swigost on again in the future to do deep dives on his practice and give us an update on how things are going. Thanks for listening. Hey, Stephen here. If you enjoyed this episode, the best way you can support a podcast is to share, follow, subscribe, and most importantly, leave an honest review on Apple Podcast or your favorite podcast hosting platform. If you're new here, you might not feel ready to leave an honest review yet. That's totally fine. At the very least, keep listening and share it with one person in your life who you think might benefit from it. Thanks for being here. Your attention means the world to me. I'll see you on the next episode. If you like this and want to subscribe to my newsletter, head over to LuellisMD.com. That's L-E-W. E-L-L-I-S-M-D as in medical doctor dot com.